0: Thank you all. Thank you, Missy, for having the kids come forward like that. So precious to watch the children, isn't it? So exciting to see them, isn't it? Okay, God, I just want to make sure sure they're excited, right? (laughs) Okay. Well, so much to talk about this morning. It's so good to see you and what an exciting time of life it is to celebrate uh, the church and uh, who Christ is. And I hope this morning that you're excited about Easter because uh, it is the time of year to celebrate without question. All right, I have several things I've got to go through uh, with you. And by the way, Missy has put together a slide presentation every, every week now of the uh, announcement. So as you come in, you can watch those scrolling on the, on the screen up there. Uh, those of you who have been a part of the youth gathering, we're still meeting tonight at 6, so look forward to seeing you there. Uh, we will not be meeting next week, parents, just so you'll know that. Uh, we're going to skip a week. Tonight, the Chosen, the adults are meeting at 7 p.m., and then again on Friday night, right, at 7 p.m. in lieu of Easter Sunday night, okay, and I'm sure they'll cover that over with you if you're coming to that, but that will be tonight at 7. Uh, Also, story time starting this Saturday, coming up at 9.30 every Saturday, called Little Free Lending Library. It's going to be a time of reading, uh, inviting the community to come for a short story time, and so Great outreach, idea by Thea and uh, Neil. Give you some credit for that too. We need more readers. Okay. Okay. Yeah. See Thea. See Thea afterwards, if you will. Uh, Having a a very small Easter egg hunt after that on Saturday. Uh, This Wednesday, come join us for our discipleship class. Those of you who are with us had a good crowd, by the way. A wonderful study in Psalm 31 by Alistair Begg. We'll continue that this Wednesday night. Uh, You've been hearing about the Easter schedule for next week. It is as follows. 9 a.m. is our worship gathering downstairs. There'll be breakfast and time of testimonies and prayer. And then we'll make our way up here at 10.30. So no 9 a.m. service Uh, No 9.30 Sunday school class, or excuse me, 9 a.m. Sunday school class. Just the one main service at 10.30 next week here online in person on our radio station 105.9. And HAMP is labeled that WLHC. (laughs) And I like that. Uh, This is that little broadcast that will go out into the parking lot here. And then right after our service next week, uh, Roylene and Dave Schaefer are going to be doing a little um, lost soul hunt. A lost soul hunt for the children. So I want you to come be a part of that. Or at least and then she'll meet you right out in the parking lot right after the main service next week. Okay, And I'm sure there are many other things. Watch for Brother Hamp's uh, email as he sends it out this week uh, to remind you of all these things. If you're with us for the first time, we're glad to have you. Those of you joining us online, we're blessed always to have you with us. And uh, it's just good to be together. So this is Palm Sunday. Exciting, exciting day. So let's pray together and we'll look at the text for this morning. Father, we thank you for another blessed opportunity to be together. Lord, As I came in this morning, I I just was, again, so reminded of the joy and the beauty of the church. Lord, how you in your mind had such an awesome concept and idea to bring together your people into this called out group of, of children who follow you and serve you and worship you. And it's just such a joy to be a part of it. So thank you, Lord, for our time together. We pray that your name would be honored today as every day as we look into what you want us to know. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. One announcement I failed to make to you that I mentioned to the church this morning was uh, my wife and I just celebrated 34 years yesterday together. And so we're excited about that. Praise the Lord. 34 years. I'll tell you a little something here that I was telling them too, a really neat little thing that happened but then I want to give a little caution with it. Uh, do you know where the uh, the exit off of 29 is coming north into Charlottesville where the Barracks Road exit is? You know what I'm talking about? You go down the hill, you go right to Barracks Road. We usually go left and hit Georgetown and come around to Earliesville to go home. Um, so at the bottom of the hill, I had the red light, and there was a homeless man standing right beside me, and I always liked to talk to him, and I gave him a couple dollars, and he looked at us, and he said, he was literally standing right here. He looked at us, and he said, you've all been together 34 years, haven't you? And my wife and I looked at each other, and she said, today. And we said, how did you know that? He said, God just told me. I'm like, so do with that what you will, okay? Um, Here's my caution, and I always want to give caution to these kind of things because God is free to do what God does, but I never want anybody to take something like that, and assume that God is making something out of it other than just a simple encouragement. There are many people, and I think you're going to see this as we go through the message today, our world is being obliterated by people who say, God told me so, and they make their life doctrine off of that. We have many people dying and on their way to hell because they say, God told me so over events kind of like what I was just describing to you, whether it's an emotion or a feeling or something. And I don't ever want you to get lost in that. We take our truth from the word of the Lord and we base our doctrine off of the word of the Lord and nothing else, okay? These things are are fun, they're exciting, they're interesting, uh, but we don't ever build our lives around them. Is that clear? We don't ever want to be distracted that way from the truth because Satan can use those things and draw us away if we're not very careful. Okay, well, today's title of the message is, Who is This Man? And I'm going to ask you to please stay with me on this because for some of you it's going to seem like way too much. For others of you, you'll be fine. Some of you will be saying, I got my knife and my fork out and it just seems really tough. I'm trying to cut through it and I'm not sure I can. So I'm going to try to make it as simple as I can, but explain for us where I think we'll, uh, what I know the Lord is giving to us, but also the relevancy of it for us today as we look at our culture. Okay, so let's stand together and read Matthew 21, verses 1 through 11. You saw the little video there of Jesus riding into Jerusalem, and this is what we want to read from Matthew's gospel here, and then we're going to make several points from it. So Matthew chapter 21, verse 1. When they, that's Jesus and the disciples and the crowd that was traveling with him, had approached Jerusalem and had come to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, Then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did just as Jesus had instructed them, and brought the donkey and the colt and laid their coats on them, and he sat on the coats. Most of the crowd spread their coats in the road, and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them in the road. The crowds going ahead of him and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! When he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirring, saying, Who is this? And the crowds were saying, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth Nazareth in Galilee. All right. Please be seated. Now, to keep all of this together, I feel like we need to bring each other up to speed. Let me bring you up to speed on what's happening in Jesus' travels. Uh, you know we've been in the Math- Matthew's Gospel. We were in Matthew chapter 8. We'll go back to that after Easter. Uh, but there's a little bit of a jump here now to chapter 21. So let me just help you to see what's happening. And that is, you remember he is now moving across the countryside. He's left the sermon uh, on the mountainside there. He presented the sermon, left the mountain, and he's traveling now, doing healing, restoring, teaching about the kingdom Uh, setting souls free. That's what he came for. And I hope you hear that this morning. The Lord came to rescue people from the domination of sin and Satan, the bondage that sin brings and controls all of men's hearts. And so now Matthew records for us that Jesus is ready to enter into the holy city. So a lot of time has transpired here since Jesus first began his public ministry. And now we're coming to the conclusion of that as he's making his way to the cross. But he's specifically coming now to observe the Passover. And that's the time when God passed over the Hebrew people in Egypt when they were in bondage hundreds and hundreds of years prior to this. In fact, let's go ahead and read this. I did not read this in the early morning service, but I think it's a blessing and and we should get our, our arms around this. So Exodus chapter 12, I want to read verses 1 through 14. Exodus 12, 1 through 14. And by the way, uh, we're going to be dancing around a little bit here, so I'm just trying to connect the dots for us to make it as clear as possible. Now, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, okay, so they're still in bondage, just about to be delivered. This month shall be the beginning of months for you. It is to be the first month of the year to you. That's significant. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month, that's significant, they are each one to take a lamb for themselves, according to their father's households, a lamb for each household. Now if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his neighbor nearest to his house are to take one according to the number of persons in them, according to which each man should eat. You are to divide the lamb. "'Your lamb shall be an unblemished male, a year old. "'You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. "'You shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the same month. "'Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel "'is to kill it at twilight. "'Moreover, they shall take some of the blood "'and put it on the 2 doorposts "'and on the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. "'They shall eat the flesh that same night, "'roasted with fire, "'and they shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs.'" Do not eat any of it raw or boiled all, at all with water, but rather roasted with fire, both its head and its legs along with, it, with its entrails. And you shall not leave any of it over until morning, but whatever is left of it until morning you shall burn with fire. And you shall eat it in this manner, with its loins girded, your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover." For I will go through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. The blood shall be assigned for you on the houses where you live, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Now this day will be a memorial to you, and you shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations." You are to celebrate it as a permanent ordinance. Okay, that was God's requirement to Israel. And from that time until Jesus rides into Jerusalem, they kept the Passover. They still keep the Passover, but I'm just giving it to us in context. In fact, Passover this year started yesterday at sundown. I don't know if you know that or not, and it will end tonight at sundown. And so This is the same Passover that the Lord is talking about that should be a perpetual celebration. And so the Jews in Matthew's day, as he's recording this for us, are preparing the Passover. But little did they know, as Jesus was riding into Jerusalem, that he was not there just to celebrate the Passover with them, but he was to be literally the Passover lamb himself. And they just did not understand that. Now, before we get too far into this, um, Christy, can we show a slide picture of this city in Jerusalem. Oh, sorry, Chris, you're back there. So if you just look at this, and I know those of you online can't see a pointer, but off to the right of the screen, you'll see a little box that says Bethphage. That's what Matthew just described as where the disciples would be entering in, coming into this eastern gate of Jerusalem. And so they would come down to, there's the Mount of Olives there right on the right of the screen. And so this is all taking place as he's now beginning to make his way down across the, the brook there in through the eastern gate or the golden gate there, as you see on the map. Now, hopefully you can see that it's pretty small. I'm sorry about that. But anyway, just to give you a little bit of a visual of what's happening here. And let me go back for a second to Matthew 8. That's where we were last week. You remember now, Matthew is, in his whole writing, is promoting Jesus as the Messiah. And so he's given to us thus far his genealogy, uh, the miraculous birth, uh, the announcement by the angels, uh, the Father's acknowledgement of his deity at his baptism, uh, Jesus' resistance to the temptation in the wilderness, his ability to perform miracles, of which we'll go back then and study as we finish up Easter. But that's not all God does. In fact, now when we get into Matthew 21, we're going to talk about two more things that is given to us very clearly, and that is his timing, number one. By his timing of entering into Jerusalem, we will, f- we will see very clearly the proof or another proof of his messiahship. Now, according to the time of the week, and let me just kind of go over this with you, and hopefully you can stay with me on this, the entrance that Matthew talks about was probably on Monday. Now, we celebrate the triumphal entry on Sunday, like today, our Palm Sunday. But more than likely, it was on Monday. And I know scholars have debated this over the years, but I think you'll see this to be pretty clear as I go through this, um, Jesus and his disciples would have entered Mary and Martha and Lazarus' house, according to John chapter 12, just a couple of days prior to this event that Matthew records for us, making their visit there on Saturday, or as John again says in John 12, six days before the Passover. It's very significant that God gives to us the exact details of which. These things happen because he knows that the critical mind of sinful man will try to dispel the things of God. And so from these things, we have a very clear picture or a map, if you will, of the timing of what happened. We also know, according to John chapter 12, verses 9 through 11, that there were many people who came to see Jesus as there were large crowds that were following him. The reality is they were probably there to see Lazarus, which is what the text tells us, but also to see Jesus. And because people would not have traveled on Saturday, being that was the Sabbath day and no work or travel was to be done, their coming to see Jesus then would have been more than likely on Sunday or which we would call or the Hebrews would call the first day of the week. Okay, for us, that's not the case. We consider Monday the first day of the week. But in the Hebrew calendar, Sunday was considered the first day of the week. And so making this his arrival into Jerusalem the Monday following or the very next day. Also, it would explain something else that people have tried to figure out, and that is in the Passion Week, Monday through Friday, there's a silent period that seems to occur on Wednesday. It's really not noticeable, at least you really don't know what events happen. We're very clear on Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, and Friday, but not so much on Wednesday. And so this arrival on Monday would eliminate that silent Wednesday, if you will, and put everything in order in addition to all that, by Jesus coming in on Monday would give more support to the very text that we just read. I'm talking about the Mosaic requirement. If you were listening, you heard God very specifically say that the sacrificial lamb for Passover were to be selected on the 10th day of the first month. Do you remember reading that just a moment ago in Exodus 12? Very clear did he say that. And kept in the house until sacrificed on the 14th of the first month. And all that, again, is back in Exodus 12. You can go back and look at that. Now, if Jesus entered Jerusalem on the 10th day of the first month of either A.D. 30 or 33, and there's some discrepancy there in the mind of theologians as to exactly which date it would have been, the day still would have been according to the calendar on Monday, just the way that it fell, meaning Jesus would have been received into the hearts of the people on the very same day in the very same way a family would have received the sacrificial lamb into their home, which would have been on the 10th day of the month. It's amazing. And Friday would be four days later when he would be crucified, making that the 14th day, which would parallel perfectly with what God told Moses when they were to observe the Passover in the very beginning so you ask, well, what does all this mean? Well, it simply means that the Lord in his divine holiness and providence has fulfilled his to the exact detail, the smallest of details, that Jesus would be the Lamb of God who would come to fulfill everything that the Lord had said he would do, of which even Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, if you remember back to our study there when we were beginning the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus himself said, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I want you to hold on to that that as well. Put a little mark beside your, your mind there and remember that. I didn't come to abolish. In fact, he said, I came to fulfill it in verse 17. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then, in verse 19, annuls one of the least of these commandments. Now, I'm going to come back to this thinking as we get to the end of the message. So hold on to this. Whoever annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. There's an obvious simple thought that comes from this, and that would be that if you want to be great in the kingdom of heaven... The simple requirement is obey the laws of God. Obey God. I'm not talking about the Mosaic laws. I'm not talking about necessarily sweeping your house free of dust and all that kind of stuff or wearing certain garments. Those were all pictures that God left for the Hebrews to understand the point. I'm simply talking about what God said he came to fulfill. We are to follow him. We are to obey him. Now that's one proof. His timing was absolutely perfect. It perfectly aligned with everything that had been foretold. And who can do that? Only God, right? Here's the second proof, and this is where we want to spend a majority of our time, and that is by fulfilled prophecy. Fulfilled prophecy. Go back with me, if you will, and look at verses 1 through 5 of Matthew 21. Jesus sends two disciples saying to them, go into the village. This is before they come into the gate. Okay? This is before the actual entry here. And immediately, he says, you will find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord has need of them and immediately he will send them. Now, I have to tell you right here that many critics have tried to deny the deity of Christ and that's not news. That is old news. But that has been the reality, making him a very good man, making him one that is full of compassion and tenderness and many things that should be emulated. Many people have done that. But what they have also done is they have thrown out his Godhead. They have thrown out him being deity, being God come in the flesh. They don't want that. And one of the passages they use is right here, and that's why I'm bringing it up, saying that Jesus did enter into Jerusalem. They won't deny that, but what they'll say is he caused such a ruckus that the authorities had to throw him away, basically crucifying as a criminal. And that's how Satan answers this particular question in the minds of people. What is this all about? Well, that's what they'll say. But these verses help us so much more because they teach us that Jesus is in very much control of his destiny. This was not something that happened by happenstance. It wasn't as if Jesus came into the, into the city and says, Oh, I wasn't expecting this. I thought that this was all going to go perfectly well. No, he knew what was going on. He was fighting to get on the cross. It wasn't them who was putting him away, but he was very much wanting to get on the cross because it was the way that you and I would have eternal life if he did. Notice Matthew says Jesus sends two of his disciples to get a very specific colt, standing, he says, beside a donkey, or in other words, its mother. Now, what's important about that scene is that it shows us also the omniscience of Jesus, his all-knowing mind that he and only God could do. Because it wasn't like the disciples could just look over there and see the donkey and the colt. It's not like the you and I would think of standing in this little village and saying, hey boys, go over there and grab that colt for a second. That's not what he says. Notice what God says. He says, go into the village opposite you. Meaning the disciples couldn't see the donkey and the colt. They had no idea what he was talking about other than what he said. They were divinely led where to go by the divine Lord, by the Lord himself, his directive. And so... What this partly shows us is Jesus' omniscience says only he would know where the donkey and the colt are. So everything that God writes has a very specific purpose. This is not just a cute little story. That's part of the story, but that's not all of it. Notice he says, he says, you will probably be questioned, basically, and I'm using my words here. And so he tells them, and I shouldn't say probably, he tells them you will be questioned. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. Well, both Luke and Mark record that scene exactly, saying that the disciples were questioned by some bystanders. And when they say, the Lord has need of them, they immediately give permission and let him take the colt. Now, perhaps they had heard of the Lord coming in and they were even in their own hearts being drawn by the Father to follow him. We don't know exactly. Some have said that, but that is a great possibility. But if nothing else, it makes it a pure understanding that the Lord was purposefully orchestrating the events of what he was to do. And this was all a part of it. And this little donkey then would become the pure vehicle, an unridden animal nobody had ever been on before. As he would be the Lord of Lords, pure in every way, coming into the city in which he would make his final rescue. But most importantly, Matthew tells us it was to fulfill prophecy. And that's where we want to focus here. So let's read again verse 4 of Matthew 21. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Okay, Say to the daughter of Zion, that's speaking of Israel, Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Now, to understand what Matthew's talking about here, we have to go back. So keep with me here, and let's go back now to Zechariah's prophecy because this is where this prophecy comes from. Zechariah chapter 9. Specifically, verse 9. This was hundreds of years before the Lord's entrance into Jerusalem. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now You and I putting these pieces together, this puzzle, look at this and we say, how in the world could anybody miss this? Right? It's absolutely amazing. But the prophecy is even greater in significance than just what Zechariah said, as great as that is. And to see that, we have to go even further back. So go with me in your minds to Daniel's prophecy in 605 B.C. That's a long time ago. Now just to catch up to speed with Daniel, you'll remember those of you who have studied this or some of you who may not know what I'm talking about, Just to help you to see this, Daniel was a young Hebrew man who was a part of the Hebrew culture that was taken into captivity along with many others from the Hebrew people into Babylon. He was a very intelligent young man, very astute in everything that he did uh, and who would not give in to the rejection of God that Nebuchadnezzar Nebuchadnezzar the king of Babylon would have the people of Israel give in to. In other words Nebuchadnezzar who had captured these people and taken them into captivity says now you will worship my God. And Daniel stands up as a young man and says not going to do it king even in threat of his life. But God holds him back or preserves him. You'll read that in the, the fiery furnace the story of that with his friends. And because of his faithfulness, God rewards him through life and through giving him great privilege in serving in Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom. But he also gave him the ability to interpret dreams. And one night, the king has a dream, which wasn't an ordinary dream, but one directly from God. And we know that because of what Daniel writes here. And it's about a giant statue, a huge statue that looks like a man, of which the ki- the mystics of Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom couldn't put together the interpretation of what it is. In fact, the king even says to them, call my people, these magicians, and have them interpret the dream for me. And so they come and they say, King, tell us what the dream is and we'll tell you the interpretation. And he says, not going to do that. If you're the real deal, you tell me even what the dream was. How'd you like that? And then you tell me the interpretation of it. And they said, well, how can we tell you the interpretation of the dream if we don't know what the dream is? Well, that's on you because if you can't do it, I'm going to have your head on a platter. Well, someone hears about Daniel's ability, tells the king, the king says, get him here. And we learn in Daniel that he interprets the dream for him in chapter 2, which is, again, a huge statue. Now, I'm not going to take time to read Daniel chapter 2. You can do that on your own, but it is very clearly explained here. But let me just give you the high points. The statue becomes a revelation, according to Daniel, of the kingdoms that will come after Nebuchadnezzar, all of the Gentile kingdoms. And when I say Gentile, I'm talking about people who are non-Jews, all of those who will rule the world and specifically over the Hebrew people. That's significant. These are the kingdoms that will rule not just the world people, but also specifically over the Jews. Now, Nebuchadnezzar in the dream is the head of gold, very clearly laid out there representing his power and his control which was all given to him by the Lord. In fact, we learn in J- Daniel chapter 2 verse 37, he says, "You, O king, are the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the strength and the glory. And whatever the sons of men wa- and wherever the sons of men may dwell, or the beasts of the field, or the birds of the sky, he has given them into your hand and has caused you to rule over all of them. And in my mind, I'm thinking the conversation kind of like, went like this. Daniel saying, hey, King Nebuchadnezzar, the guy in your dream that's the head of gold, that's you. You're the king. Now, Nebuchadnezzar would probably be thinking, hey, this is awesome. Until Daniel goes on and interprets the rest of the dream for him. The second part of the dream is that of the chest and the arms, which would represent another kingdom that will come and defeat the Babylonians, known as the Medes and the Persians, which would be in 593 B.C., and history records that that's exactly what happened. Now, the two countries represent one of the two arms, the Medes and the Persians, or the Medes and the Persians, whichever one it would be. The belly and the thighs, as you work your way down, of bronze that Daniel would interpret for him represents the next kingdom, which is the Greek Empire, dominated, as we know historically, by Alexander the Great, and you need to hold on to him because we're going to come back to him later in the message who was the one who conquered the Medes and the Persians between somewhere around 334 and 330 BC which is what Daniel refers to as an empire that would be an empire that would be over the entire earth according to verse 39 So a powerful, powerful empire. And if you know history, you know that Alexander the Great was just that. He was a young man. He died young, but he had an amazing conquering empire. Moving down this statue or this dream, Daniel says to him, the legs represent another nation that we now know was Rome, who conquered the Greek empire in 63 BC. But in the image, they are characterized or the nation is characterized by both iron and clay stronger than any of the other nations before them, but yet regressing to a weaker nation symbolized by the clay. And so the iron represents the great power, but the clay represent the weakness. And it certainly was a weak nation eventually, like many other kingdoms. This one in particular, we're told in verse 41 by Daniel, in the interpretation would be a divided kingdom. If you know Roman history, you know that that's exactly what happened. It didn't fall from the external enemies, it fell from within. And the Lord had prophesied that to a T or told of this through Daniel in this dream to a pagan king. And so what we have here is a man named Daniel filled with the wisdom of God who had to go to this pagan king telling the king what's going to come and what's going to happen in the world. And so people will ask oftentimes, how can we trust God? Well, the simple answer would be if you look at the Bible, you're going to see a God who's pretty good at telling the future. And we better pay attention to what he's telling us because God has already, in fact, told us what the future's going to be. People don't have to run around saying, oh, what's going to happen, what's going to happen? Well, God's already told us what's going to happen. We don't have to be alarmed by it. And back to Daniel's prophecy because he prophesies something else. Let's go now to Daniel chapter 9. <clears throat> Some years have passed. Kingdoms have come and gone. Daniel is still there. Still favored by the Lord, still favored by the leaders of the various kingdoms. <coughs> Excuse me. In Daniel 9 verse 1, in the first year of Darius, this is a new kingdom, Still in the, the people are still in captivity, the son of Ahasuerus of Midian descent, who was made king over the kingdom of the Chaldeans. <coughs> Excuse me. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, observed in the books the number of the years, which was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet for the completion of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. So basically, Daniel is looking through the writings of Jeremiah and he's realizing that God has said that the nation will be in captivity for 70 years. So Daniel, out of great anguish of heart, look at verse 3, gives his attention to the Lord to seek him in prayer and supplications with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. Daniel says, I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed. So again, some time has passed. Daniel has learned what's happening. He is of great sorrow of heart. He's ready to repent of all of this for his people. And he does that. And he asks God this later in verse 19. So jump down to verse 19 of Daniel 9. And just listen to how he writes this. Oh, Lord, hear. Oh, Lord, forgive. You can just see the passion of his heart. Oh Lord, listen and take action. If you've ever had a situation in your life where you know that the only one who can answer you is God, this is the kind of prayer that you'd be praying. For your own sake, oh my God, do not delay because your city and your people are called by your name. In other words, Daniel's intervening for the people. And he's saying, Lord, you've got to restore us. We will be wasted away to nothing if you don't. And so he prayed for the nation. And by the way, if you just want to know how best to pray for the nation, this verse right here would be a great place to mark in your Bible as a, a prayer to emulate as you pray for our nation. Some people will say, I don't know what to pray. Well, you don't need to make up one. Just go and pray scripture. This is a good one. Now watch what happens. God, in response to Daniel's request, sends Gabriel. Not just any angel, but Gabriel one of the archangels, the highest of order of angels, and he tells him what's going on in Daniel 9 verses 24 through 27. What God's telling Daniel is it's going to be 483 years. Gabriel gives him all this information. He says, here's the answer to your question, Daniel. It's going to be 483 years after Artaxerxes' decree to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. In other words, a decree is going to come from the pagan king to go back, rebuild the temple. From that decree until the coming of Messiah, the first time, it's going to be 483 years. Okay, Very clear. Now what God wants you and me to know from this is Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the very day according to Daniel's prophecy. The very moment in time when God said through the prophets that the king would come riding on a colt, into the city of Jerusalem was to the day that God prophesied and said that this would happen. Now let's go to Zechariah's prophecy, the one that was mentioned in Matthew, one more time and read it again. Zechariah 9.9. This is where Matthew gets it. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Now what's Zechariah prophesying? He's saying, here's the Lord, just like God told you, he would come. He is just, he is endowed with salvation, humble, and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, I told you to hold on to Alexander the Great because what we didn't read was in Zechariah chapter 9, the first eight verses. I'm not going to go back and read those, but just understand that most people believe, and it seems to line up very clearly, that Zechariah is actually in those first eight verses of Zechariah 9 prophesying about Alexander the Great's coming and his conquest. Because when he comes as the bronze belly and the thighs, according to Daniel's prophecy years before Zechariah, who would be Greek and overthrow the Medes and the Persians, it all lines up, which is exactly what Alexander the Great did. And it was Zechariah who was living in the days of the Medes and the Persians who also along with Daniel predicted the coming of Alexander which we just read and the Roman Empire and Israel's future in the first eight verses of Zechariah 9. All of that working together. You see how the dots begin to connect even from history past. But God doesn't mention Alexander. Some people would ask well why doesn't God mention Alexander the Great? That's not God's point. God's point is always to elevate himself so that we see that it is God who is doing the work, not man. Interestingly, Alexander the Great, if you look at history, this tells you this, that Alexander was not able to get into Jerusalem. And that's prophesied even in Zechariah 9, verse 8. But I will camp, God says, around my house because of an army... Because of him who passes by and returns, and no oppressor will pass over them anymore. God is saying Alexander will try to take Jerusalem, but he will not. I have withheld that from him. Now notice verse nine of Zechariah of chapter nine. The Lord gives Israel good news. Rejoice, O daughter of Jerusalem, or daughter of Zion, your king is coming to you. I know we've read this a couple times, but I want you to hear the impact of this. He is just and endowed with salvation. Who is this king? He is the king who brings salvation with him. What was Israel looking for? Salvation. They'd been in bondage by Pharaoh. They'd been in bondage to the Babylonians, to the Medes, to the Persians, to the Greeks, to the Romans. And they're looking for salvation. And God says, in my timeline, if you will look at my word, you will see that he will come. And this will be him. He will ride on the foal of a donkey as God come into the holy city. And you probably are saying, well, that's great history, but why do I need to know all of that? I think we need to know because, number one, God told Israel that the Messiah would come and that should be good enough reason, even to the very day of his arrival. He gave the message to the prophets who told them the reign of the men who would take them into captivity because of their sin. God told them all of that. And Zechariah describes the Messiah as the righteous one who will come with salvation as we just talked about. He's going to come as the deliverer, which is what the salvation means. And you'll know him because he's going to come again very humbly, very humbly. And Daniel and Zechariah would also prophesy something else. Let's go backwards again to Daniel chapter 2 because... As you study prophecy, you begin to understand that what God does is He gives a certain amount of information that may pertain to a certain period of time, but then in the very next verse, He could give a a, a prophecy on something that is years later, and that's exactly what we find in most of the prophets, especially in these two men. So as much as we had the coming of the kingdoms in Daniel chapter 2 and the reign of men and the coming of Christ now Daniel even in chapter 2 in a split second gives to us the second coming of Christ in the days of those kings the God of heaven will set up a kingdom listen which will never be destroyed and that kingdom will not be left for another people it will crush and put an end to all the kingdoms but it will itself endure forever and as much as you saw that a stone was cut out of the mountain without hands. And let me pause right there because part of the prophecy that Daniel sees here as he's seeing this statue of a man, he sees at the end of it a boulder, if you will, or this mountain rolling down this huge thing tumbling down the mountain and crushing the feet of the statue. Well, Daniel is now saying, listen, in as much as you saw that a stone was cut out of the mountain without hands and that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king, he's talking to Nebuchadnezzar, what will take place in the future. So the dream is true and its interpretation is trustworthy. Listen, here's what he's saying. Nebuchadnezzar... Here's your statue. This is you. These are all the kingdoms to come. But eventually there's going to come one that will obliterate all the nations of men. And God is saying to Daniel, through Daniel, you better listen because there's not going to be a king like him. There'll never be another king like him who will crush the kingdom of man and he will rule the whole world. If you look back in verse 35 of Daniel chapter 2, we see that the rock became a mountain. And that picture is very relevant because the Messiah would be the mountain, Jesus Christ, when he comes the second time. Daniel's prophecy is when he comes the second time, not the first time. He didn't come to be the mountain the first time. The first time he came to rescue souls, to gather people to himself. Because when he comes again, he's coming to crush the kingdoms of men, those who will reject him. And he will be the God of all gods and reign forever, even specifically throughout the thousand year reign in the millennium. And that's all in Zechariah 9 as well. Look with me at verse 10. We have in the first eight verses, Alexander, we have the prophecy of his coming as a gentle man in the triumphal entry, which we're celebrating today. And in verse 10, we have his second coming. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem and the bow of war will be cut off and he will speak peace to the nations and his dominion will be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Zacharias now jumped years ahead after the time of the rapture, into the thousand-year reign of Christ when Christ is seated high and holy, ruling over the hearts of men. So what are we saying? We're saying that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the very day God told He would come in, perfectly fulfilling His promise, even what He promised from the beginning. We go back to Genesis chapter 3, and the Lord says in verse 15, To Satan, after he tempts Eve and she succumbs to his temptation, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, speaking of Christ, and you shall bruise him on the heel. And basically, he will be the king forever. And I think that's such a monumental statement because you need to hold on to it because we're going to come back to it again here in just a minute as we look at what's happening in our culture right now. But up to this point now, what we're talking about here in our lifetime, Jesus is the king. And I think that should be pretty obvious. He's come not to judge, but to rescue us, to save us, for anybody who will turn their hearts to him, to offer himself as a peace offering between the Father and us. He stands in between us, which is what Hebrews writes about. He is our intercessor, our intermediary. He is the high priest who's making intercession for us. And all of that is represented in him riding in on the on the colt, this humble ride on this pure animal that had never been ridden before. And all the people welcomed him. They gave him a warrior's entrance because they were looking for a warrior. They were looking for someone to free them from Rome because they thought that's what he was to do. He was coming in to ride in to take over now the Romans, those people who had oppressed them for so many years. But the problem is they didn't know him. They should have known him, but they didn't know him. And we know that because in just a few hours they're going to be shouting, crucify him. Well, why would they do that? Because he wasn't who they thought he was. They had made him to be another God. And we hear that and we hear heaven shouting, but he's not just another man. He is man fully, but he's not just another man. He is 100% God who took on the form of man. He took on the flesh of man to suffer with us, to be tempted in every way that we are tempted, but he is not man, beloved. He's not man to just be wiggled around and moved around and pushed around any way that we want him to be because of the way we feel in life. He is God. He is the king. And he has proven himself throughout history. But Sadly, pitifully I might add, the world has been just as confused about Jesus as they were in Jesus' day. And I think I can show you what I'm talking about. If you listen to what's going on in our world right now, if you're paying attention at all, you know that the world is in a real mess. And what I'm talking about is not a mess to those who are in the midst of it because they think it's perfect and wonderful, well, except for the climate maybe. And the people who like us are the great irritations. But you and I know that the world is growing greatly in this chasm of separateness and this division People saying, let me believe what I want to believe. You leave me alone, I'll leave you alone. Oh, until you don't believe what I want you to believe, and then I'll come after you. You see, that's where we are now. It's a progression of slowness, but it's occurring, where at once it was, just leave me alone and I'll be fine. You live in your yard, I'll live in my yard. Now it's becoming, let me live in my yard, and oh, by the way, if you don't let me take over everything else, I'm going to condemn you. It's exactly what's happening in our society. Such a double standard. Saying be equal with all people while they're turning everything around and being completely illogical. And the world is shouting about how insensitive Christians are as people or groups screaming to be inclusive while at the same time being the epitome of exclusivity as they demand we change to accept their agenda. My friend Paul Miller, who wrote our book, A Praying Life, I was talking to him the other day, and he said this, and I'm borrowing a lot of Paul's thoughts here because I think he's exactly right about our culture. He said, secular liberalism has said people should be inclusive of all people, compassionate to all people, relevant to all people, but Christianity is judgmental, narrow, and old-fashioned. Does that sound familiar? He's right about that. So Paul's question is, where did the secular liberals get their great compassion? If it's all about compassion and letting people be who they are and who they want to be, where would they get it? Well, the answer is it came from Jesus. Because they'll use phrases like Matthew 7 in the Sermon on the Mount, don't judge me unless you be judged. Right? Who made you my judge? Well, where does that come from? It comes from Jesus. Right? And so the world takes portions of jesus and uses them as their tool of measurement and paul says this all started years ago i mean we could go back as far as the beginning of sin into the picture of human race but in our nation it really ramped up before thomas jefferson but really thomas jefferson was a great influence in all of this when he wrote his own bible i know i'm speaking devil work here in charlottesville when i say this but you know it to be true For anybody to remove the miracles and the resurrection of Christ out of the Bible is dangerous ground to be on. Why did he do that? Because Jefferson wanted a human Jesus. He didn't want a divine Jesus. Because when you have a divine Jesus, then all of a sudden you have to listen to him. You have to listen to everything that he says. But if you only have a human Jesus, you can take what you want and throw away the rest. In fact, let me show you this picture here. This is a picture that Paul Miller puts in his material. I know on on the screen you can't see this as me pointing to this, but if you could show that little um, chart, the little circle there. So Paul Paul did this picture here where the wheel represents or the circle represents the donut, if you will, represents Jesus. And you and I would say, yes, he's fully man. That's his humanity. We would say, but at the core, he's God, Right? What the culture has said over the last ump the ump years is we want the human Jesus and all that he taught, but we don't want the divine Jesus. I think Paul's right. And he says over the next 150 years, preachers even began to preach the virtues of Jesus, but not the divinity of Jesus. And those of you who've been Southern Baptists for a long time know this to be true. You remember back in... It started somewhere around the 60s and 70s where even the theologians in the Southern Baptist seminaries and even later, we're talking about 70s and 80s even, began to actually teach liberal theology. Now, when I first heard about this, I thought, what kind of liberal theology? That women shouldn't wear pants? Or women could, you know, that kind of thing? No, they began to teach that there was no virgin birth in Baptist seminaries. You say, what? Yeah. That's exactly why the Southern Baptist Conservatives of Virginia, the state convention, was formed in the early 90s because it was gone so full-blown liberal that many of the conservative people were saying, we're not going to follow that path. And so they decided to make their own convention in the state. Well, some good leadership changed over by some godly men and they, the state then said, okay, we'll hang on a little bit, but we're going to watch closely. And it was all bound and formulated by this secular thinking. And this kind of humanistic view of Jesus began to take over as more time passed. Paul puts them, the secular liberals very specifically began to remove Jesus altogether. So no longer did you just have the Jesus of humanity spoken about and the divinity, but the divinity was pushed away. And then over time, even Jesus' humanity was pushed away. We don't want Jesus at all. Oh, but we'll hold on to his teachings. But we're not going to say that that's where they came from. Let me show you this slide of Paul's study. Notice the X marked out spot in the middle. So Jesus' divinity is gone, his humanity is gone, but notice if you can see this, the the facets of it. We want racial justice. We want compassion. We want inclusion. We want peace, and peace initiatives. We want women's rights. We want immigrants' rights. We want disability rights. We want the poor to be taken care of. That all sounds very clear like today, doesn't it? That's all good. That's all very right. The interesting thing about it is the reason Paul puts them in the middle is because Jesus was the greatest proponent of those things. He was the one that produced all of those things. As God, in fact, if you just take one of those, like women's rights, for example, Jesus was the one who promoted and elevated women more than anybody in the world. Which is why he could say through Paul, Husbands, love your wives just as hell. Christ loved the church. Well, how did he do that? He gave himself up for her. That's pretty sacrificial. That's pretty honoring of women, isn't it? Peter would come along and say the same thing in 1 Peter 3. So basically, husbands, don't treat your wives like dirt. Where'd that come from? It came from Jesus. Well, if you move Jesus out, we like the idea. But what we really like is, I want my way. And so women's rights begin to develop, and, 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 and all there being a sense of rightness in that, there's certainly rightness in that. Nobody should ever be shunned for just being a particular person. But secular liberalism then came along and said, no, we we just want women's rights. And you know what comes from that? When that becomes the focus, becomes, let's call it, the God, then comes abortion because this new baby becomes an irritation to my rights because what I really worship is my rights as a woman. And so it's easy for me to go to the abortion clinic because the baby's not the subject, I'm the subject. I worship me and my rights, I am the God. And so it's easy to throw the baby out where you and I would go, how in the world can you do that? Well, this is how they can do that because they want the rights but they don't want the God of the rights. You take the gay community and they'll say, let me be who I want to be. God made me this way. So we should be included in society. They say, leave me alone. I'm just like everybody else. What they forget and leave out is that God destroyed people who lived in such sin. And if you throw Jesus out, you know you're left with a different God, right? You can't just go against your God. So Right? If you have a God, you can't just dismiss it. you got to worship it. And so whatever you make the God to be, and in this case, this God says, it's okay with me to be this way. My God tells me I'm all right. I can do whatever I want to do, and I can even call it in the name of God. But I'm saying to us this morning, this is not the God of the Bible. Not the true God. This also is why you have articles that just came out the other day in USA Today about the Oral Roberts University basketball team. Did you read about that? Now, Oral Roberts is a university that has Christian foundations, and we wouldn't agree with everything, but they've done really well. In fact, they just got beat last night. They were, what, Jeff, number 15, I guess, in the the rankings? They just got beat, but they were doing really well. But here's an article. Listen to this. Here's the title. Oral Roberts University, this is USA Today. Isn't the feel-good March Madness story we need? Because, according to, in the writer's name, the NCAA should never have permitted Oral Roberts to participate in the national tournament due to the institution's apparently bigoted, out-of-date, homophobic, prejudicial views on marriage, gender, and sexuality. The author says, quote, and yet as the spotlight grows on Oral Roberts and its reaps of the goodwill, publicity, and revenue of a national title run, the university's deeply bigoted anti-LGBTQ policies can't and shouldn't be ignored. In other words, the article was saying they shouldn't be allowed in the tournament and have a stance like that. What I'm saying is it's the same thing. Here's my God. I don't want your Jesus. I want what he taught. I don't want him. I don't want his divinity. And oh, by the way, if you're not going to agree with me, you shouldn't be a part of life at all. That's what I'm talking about how we where we've moved. And that's obvious now. And you can add any one of these subjects that are in our day-to-day, whether it's black lives matter, racial justice, immigrant's rights, the poor, socialism, just read the papers and it's all about what god people are worshipping. And they make it the god of the universe. And you can't ignore the God of the universe, right? You and I don't. We're serving the God of the universe, the God of the universe, by everything that we're studying here. And we're saying, no, this is the God of the universe, but they're saying, no, we don't want that God. We want the God we want to worship. And it comes in the forms of these titles. And again, if you don't worship my God... I'll stop you in the street. I'll jerk you out of your car. I'll put a gun to your head and I'll force you to do what I tell you to do because this is my God. And so what we have at the end of the day then is a culture of people who are free from obligation. They're free from the guilt of sin, the demand to be righteous because Jesus is removed. There's no deity anymore. There's no righteous teaching but just a blindedness of the real truth. That's what you're left with. Paul Miller says what we have in our culture now is a tyranny of compassion. It's a great statement. or I would say the reign of compassion. Let's just be compassionate. Everybody needs to love, 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 love. And we would shout at the top of the mountain, of course we want to love. But we cannot deny truth. We cannot deny righteousness. What the tyranny of compassion says is we want compassion with no divine constraints, no divine order, no divine legislation, no absolute truth. We don't want any of that. And you and I are shouting back, it's a false God. It's fake. It's phony. It will leave you nowhere but in eternal death. What you need is the true God who gives you all of these things with a perfect parameter to fit in with righteous compassion and righteous truth which is exactly how Jesus operated didn't he? Which is why he could say to the woman at the well who the culture pushed out he could say woman here's who I am and he rescued her right? With great grace but yet never compromising the truth. You Go back to Matthew just for a minute we're almost done here. I think we could say it this way that God if we put the circle of Paul's diagram back up here you don't have to do it but just think with me for a second the god the hebrews were worshiping was the god of deliverance that's where they had gone and they were so madly in love and pursuit of the god of deliverance that when jesus came as the true god that had been prophesied for centuries they killed him because he wasn't fitting the god that they had been promoting When he came into Jerusalem on that day, he proclaimed himself the king and nobody stopped him. Why? Because he is the king. And he will come back. And Daniel prophesied the same thing in Daniel 9, verse 24. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people in the holy city. This is Gabriel giving Daniel his answer. Seventy weeks. That's seventy sevens, which is a lot of years, to finish the transgression. Listen. To finish the transgression, that means to get rid of sin. That's what he says. To make an atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness. To seal up vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy place. In other words, Daniel, keep your chin up. Keep your chin up. This is what's going to happen. The world is going to want gods of their own making. See, it's been interesting as you and I listened to all of this over the years, but now we're starting to see it being fulfilled, aren't we? Where a pastor in Canada is put in jail because his church was open? What kind of world is that? What kind of world is it where we put people in jail and lock away the God who comes to give grace, and eternal life. What kind of demonically controlled place is that? Where people will live lies? It's all exactly what God said, but he's coming back. What we're celebrating today, and we'll celebrate again next Sunday, is that God, on the day of the triumphal entry, he rode in and proclaimed himself the Messiah. I've come to set you free. And many have been set free and I pray that that's been you. I pray that that will be you if it's not you. That you look at scripture and you say, listen, here's what I want to say to the culture. This is me, not Paul, but I think Paul would say the same thing. I'm talking about Paul Miller. Listen, you cannot profess to love Jesus and follow Jesus and make him another God. You can't do that. You can't take all of the prophecies of God that have been laid out for thousands of years to minute, fractional detail and proclaim your belief to be what's right. It has to come from what He says, or you will surely perish. But that's what the world's doing, that's what the culture's doing. Give me Jesus. Give me the teachings of Jesus. Uh, Just give me the subject. And it just gets worse and worse and worse. You wonder why we're living, what's happening in our culture? That's what's happening. You look at the papers, you scratch your head and you say, how can people do this? That's why it's happening. Because they take one of those subjects and many more and they make that their God and they will die for their God, right? That's the great divine mystery. Satan totally blinds people to the point where they think they're following their God and they're really blind when the true God says, I'm right here. Okay, well, let's pray together. Father, for many, many, many years, I have, and we, many of us, have been a part of services where you proclaimed your entrance into Jerusalem. And we've celebrated it. And we do celebrate it. And next week we'll celebrate even greater your resurrection. But Lord, I think like no other time in history, at least in the history of this nation, we are seeing the human mind move away more and more from who you are. What's even greatly sadder is that it's being done in your name. As if you are the one leading it all. Father, the the human heart is so easily blinded. I pray that you would awaken the souls of the lost. I pray that you'd awaken your church, that we might be proclaimers of the truth. Lord, teach us how to respond to the world. Help us to hear the questions the world is asking and not move upon some feeling or some event like I experienced with my wife yesterday but to go back to your word over and over and over again and say to the people that we love, look, here's what God says. Here's what God says. Here's what God says. And help them, Lord, to move away from their own impressions and their own feelings about what life should be. Lord, there are so many people that are being drugged down into the pit of hell and they don't even know it. Lord, may we be wise. May we be gentle like our king who came riding gently into the nation, into the, into the Jerusalem. Lord, may we be gentle, but may we be truthful, not compromising, not apologizing. Lord, teach us how to be this way. Help us to be the church that you created us to be. And Lord, we'll give you the praise. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.